The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Kevin, this is Gabriel Kelly at the Washington Post. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from the Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 28th. Today, what happens after the death of Molly Tibbetts? A guide to leaving social media and what the year's best book-to-movie adaptations had in common. Molly Tibbetts. It's a name that you may remember from last summer in the lead-up to the midterm election, from wall-to-wall coverage on cable news, from conservative commentators, and, of course, from President Trump. Molly Tibbetts, an incredible young woman, is now permanently separated from her family. A person came in from Mexico illegally and killed her. Over the summer, Molly was murdered. She'd gone missing while she'd been out for a run, and a month later, after a massive manhunt, her body was found in a cornfield. Police believe her killer was a man named Cristian Bajena Rivera, an undocumented immigrant. And her story was held up as a cautionary tale in the national debate over immigration policy. Molly was a person that at times became this symbol of why we should clamp down the border, but she as a person was sometimes lost in this narrative. Molly was a person who thought we should be able to help any immigrant into this country who needed it. What was also lost in this narrative that emerged after Molly's death was her family. In an op-ed for the Des Moines Register, Molly's father, Rob Tibbetts, he lit into the people who were trying to use her death for political ends. He wrote, quote, The person who was accused of taking Molly's life is no more a reflection of the Hispanic community as white supremacists are of all white people. To suggest otherwise is a lie. I remember the day that Molly's body was found. And the thought that I had was, what was it like to have your family become the focus of the entire country? Terry McCoy is a reporter for The Post. And this question about the private experience of Molly's family, it brought him to her hometown of Brooklyn, Iowa. (laughs) And I I was like, a truck? (laughs) You're in Iowa. to meet Molly's mother, Laura Calderwood. Amid all the media frenzy that dominated Molly's death, Laura chose to stay quiet. If you're someone who just wants to be able to grieve and mourn your daughter, the smartest thing that Laura thought she could do was to say nothing at all. So that's what she did. What was the grieving process for them like? So the grieving process is an extraordinarily difficult time when you lose a child, but it can be even more difficult when... There's national news trucks all over the place. There are authorities, federal authorities who are investigating this. And to have to be able to grieve when everybody, wherever you go, is looking at you and knowing what you're going through was immensely difficult. But there was something that helped Laura throughout this process. And that was one day she received an unusual request from her son. Scott said to me, Mom, can you adopt Ulysses? 
Ulysses Felix was one of her son's good friends. He is your everyday, typical 17-year-old American boy. He's got his hair dyed blonde. He wears his high-top tennies. He's playing video games. He loves sports. But Ulysses had a very special role in the fact that he was the son of Mexican immigrants too. And not only was he the son of Mexican immigrants, he lived and worked at the same farm where the accused killer had lived and worked. His ties to this accused killer at times seemed endless. He was the cousin of the mother of the accused killer's child. And so he knew this man and his family knew him intimately. So also now Laura was faced with a choice. And they said, Scott, I can't adopt him, but if he needs a place to live, he's got one. I didn't even flinch. Mm-hmm. Why? So, I mean, that, that I just find remarkable. The idea that this is not only a, sh- a stranger, but, but a person who knew and who had family ties to the person who killed her daughter. I mean, that seems, I, I couldn't even imagine entertaining bringing that person into your home. So you have to understand the context in which all of this was occurring. After Molly's body was found and after they had arrested the accused killer, Brooklyn, Iowa became ground zero for the most divisive political issue in America right now of what to do about illegal immigrants. And this farm where he was working, Yerby Farms, became almost the villain in the saga of some people's narrative that they're telling. And all of a sudden, this farm was deluged with vitriolic notes and emails and calls. Some of those calls that were routed through to Ulysses' family's trailer. It was an intensely terrifying moment for these families who were working on this farm. So all of them left. All of them fled. But Ulysses is a 17-year-old boy. The only life, the only world he's ever known has been Brooklyn, Iowa. And he wants to be able to finish his senior year. He has all his buddies there. He was in school. He was playing football. So, of course, he wanted to stay. He wanted to finish high school here, so she opened up her home to him. And how soon after Molly had been found was this? Oh, it was all happening at once. We found out who murdered Molly. It was like a day or two after that everyone quit. At the farm? At the farm, which included Ulysses' father. Was Ulysses' parents like, what are you doing? Like, you need to come with us? I mean, the thing is that this is a small town. And Ulysses' parents recognized Laura was someone who was honest and a good person and would be able to help Ulysses if he needed it. I said, I've got a guest bedroom that's ready and waiting for him. I said, it just makes sense. And then the mother was like, thank you so much. And then I looked to his father, whose English is not very good, but he did come up with the words, thank you and you don't know how much I love you right now. And he gave me a hug. Like I said, it was it was such a great it was like such a great thing because I wanted to stay and finish out my senior year here, and me being friends with Scott, mm-hmm. it just helped ease that situation. For Ulysses, was any part of him fearful or apprehensive about moving in with his family? I guess in part because they're going through a really tough time, but also because I mean, this is a family that's being inundated with mail and phone calls about how terrible undocumented immigrants are. I asked him that a number of times. Um, I just wanted to hear like what this whole year has has like meant to you, and like I guess how everything has been. Just I'm sure, just super crazy for you. 
it, it has been, like, it's been yeah it's been crazy you just be like yeah it is crazy this is nuts <laughs> but <laughs> you mean he's a teenage boy yeah, exactly so that, it, was, it was very refreshing in that regard where sometimes i would ask him these like i'll try to get him in these sort of short political questions and I'd be like well what did you think about doing this at the time of trump he's all like i you know i just want to play basketball with my buddies type thing <laughs> and this is the way for him to be able to follow through with that and yet it was a wild set of circumstances he does understand that but for him what he wants to be able to achieve and what he wants to be able to get out of this is a place to stay you know laura has become you know a maternal presence in his life what they're able to find then is that they both have something that the other person was in need of they're both mourning a loss of family in a certain way obviously laura who had lost her daughter through the most violent of fashions and Ulysses, who had lost his family to relocation as a result of the fallout of that violence. What did the relationship between Ulysses and Laura and the rest of her family look like? I mean, it was, there were awkward moments. Like, the fact is that he moved into a house where nobody ate the food that he did. And, you know, people didn't really share meals altogether a lot. And there wasn't this sort of, like, chaotic sort of community that he was accustomed to amid the trailers on the farm. Tell me about the, um, did you guys live on one of those mobile homes on the farm? Or where'd you yeah, live? so our, like, our rent and everything was paid for, so it was like a really nice situation living yeah. there. So it was almost like a, like a community and things like that. Everybody was like... Yeah, like, I remember, like, so like, they, yeah. they always like playing volleyball and stuff, so we'd like throw big volleyball parties. Like, <laughs> and so like they were set up courts and like a bunch of people like from in town. The man who police think killed Molly is a 24-year-old undocumented immigrant named Christian Bahena Rivera. And at this farm, he'd worked there for a number of years. How exactly did Ulysses know Rivera? This man, Rivera, had a close bond and connection with the family of Ulysses. He was someone who came over for family holidays. He was around, you know, at the house during the day. And he was someone who had a, had a close connection to the family. He came to Brooklyn, Iowa, more or less alone. And he didn't really have anyone to look after him. So Elise's mother kind of looked after him. She fed him every day. Like, he was working, so he got housing and stuff. But he was so busy sending money back to his parents, trying to, like, help them build the house. Mm-hmm. And Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And, like, he didn't have really much left for himself. Did you know all that, Laura? Mm-mm. How do Laura and Ulysses talk about his relationship to Rivera? They don't talk about it often, frankly, because it's difficult for Laura because she really only wants to think of this alleged killer in one way, and that's a man without morality, a man without decency. She doesn't want to hear anything redeeming or good about this guy because this is the guy who allegedly killed her daughter. She wants this guy to go to jail. The fact that he, according to Ulysses, was working and sending home money back to his family so they, they could build a house. I mean, how do you... Laura's had a lot of difficulty trying to reconcile what Ulysses says of him and, and what the police say of him. And she can only understand, like, was he on drugs? Was he on bath salts? Was What was going on in this man's world? That's been one of the most difficult things that Laura's had to try to understand. Has Molly's death changed at all how... Laura thinks about immigration or immigration policy? I don't think so. I think Laura looks at immigrants as people who are coming here to make a living, 
and trying to better their lives and in the process, hopefully bettering the country that we, we live in now. And Laura understands what happened to Molly as an anomaly, a terrible, tragic, horrific anomaly. The fact that Laura, Molly's mom, had taken in Ulysses, did that become public? No, it never did. Laura never told anyone about it, really. I knew potential of what could happen, the potential of a backlash because of my actions and because of the political climate. And I didn't care what happened to me, but I did think, please don't let this affect my boys. It's still interesting to me that she is so averse to making a political statement that even this thing that she did that could be such an example for the country in terms of how to demonstrate forgiveness and generosity and selflessness in a really tough moment, that even that she like doesn't want to publicize because it would become political. I think, you know, at the same time, we in Washington, because we think everything through the lens of politics and how it reflects on whatever the, the national drama is of the moment, I think it's easy for us to forget that many people in the country don't think that way. They think personally, instinctually, and what they represent or don't represent does not really bear into how they make their decisions. And Laura's one of those people. I mean, she's someone who follows the news, follows politics, understands all that stuff, but what she does with Ulysses and how she's helping him, for her, it has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with how this reflects on the country that we are at the moment. She was trying to help out a boy who seemed to be in need, and that was the end of it. Terry McCoy is a reporter for The Post. He says that Ulysses Felix is on track to graduate from high school this spring, and he's hoping to go to culinary school after that. A year ago, Facebook announced to users that things were going to change. Expect more posts from friends and family and less news. Facebook is an idealistic and optimistic company. For most of our existence, we focused on all of the good that connecting people can do. Except it turned out that the company was sharing that information from friends and family with outside groups. Earlier this year, CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified about the Cambridge Analytica scandal to European lawmakers and to Congress. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. Cambridge Analytica shows people how cavalier they were with your information. It kind of like tipped a lot of people over the edge. Elizabeth Dwoskin covers Silicon Valley for The Post. Because for a lot of people who care about democracy and the country and the election, it was like, oh, this is really bad for our society. So even if maybe people didn't go and say, I want to delete Facebook, people didn't feel good about it after those stories came out. She says that now people are beginning to think twice about their use of Facebook, either taking a break or leaving altogether. Well, so how common is it for people to look at all of that and say, look, I don't need that. I'm going to get off Facebook. Well, I can tell you what data I know that's out there. Pew has said that 49% of Americans in the last year have taken a break or deleted their account from Facebook. 
And that's huge. If you think about it, that's literally half of people who were on these platforms. And what we saw recently is that Zuckerberg actually used the word saturated, I think a month ago. What, do you, what does that mean? Well, saturate is the euphemism to say, like, we don't expect to get any more new users anytime soon in North America. But you could also look at saturated and say, saturated really means actually people are petering off. Because if you actually look at some other data, like from Nielsen, you can see that usage is actually going down per person. People who are on there are spending less time. Hmm. So thinking about that, how has the approach from Facebook and from other social media companies changed in response to this kind of shift in how users want to engage with social media? Well, on a personal level, for a lot of the people there, especially the top brass who built that company, you know, and what they saw as a world-changing company, and in all fairness, it has changed how people communicate and organize. I think they're looking and saying, like, Well, people really hate us. We're Facebook, but like we still are going to be able to capitalize on trends. Like maybe not everyone's deleting social media, not everyone's going away. And then on a practical level, one of the most interesting things that Facebook did was last January, they basically said, we're going to make a huge change in our newsfeed algorithm. And you may remember heading up to the election when you would go onto Facebook. Remember how much news you were seeing all the time from publishers? Yeah, totally. And So they said, we're going to deprioritize publishers. We're going to deprioritize news. We use a process called ranking to determine which posts show up in your newsfeed and in what order, based on what we think you'll be most interested in. Connections with people in your network will get the biggest boost because interacting with people you're close to is more meaningful. And to me, that was them retreating from their civic mission because in the past they'd always talked about how they were going to be like, you know, the place where people came to read news. Hmm. And they said the research has shown us that people really want to engage more with their friends and family. I know that I've seen that change in my own feed. Hmm. Interesting. And so what Zuckerberg said was he said, look, this is going to cost us. Like he recognized that people get sucked into news and people start clicking and clicking. <laughs> but what he said is that we think it will help people create more meaningful time. And then essentially that raised eyebrows for a lot of us reporters. Well, what do you mean by meaningful time? So it turns out that they were creating a metric within the company for the last year to try to calculate, did people feel their time was spent meaningfully? And can we measure that? And so that's like a really big question that I think all tech companies right now are trying to answer, codify into software and answer mathematically as well, because they have to measure it somehow. I also want to talk more about privacy, because you can make this criticism of like, well, people have been feeding their data to these companies for you know the past decade. People should have seen this coming, right? That Facebook is not going to be the most responsible company in the world when it comes to protecting your data. They're not a bank. They're not uh, a health insurance company. They're, they're a social media company. And so, of course, they would use that data. Yeah, you're like, wasn't the bargain already known? Yeah. They're not regulated at all. Like To your point about they're not a bank, they're not a this. They're not regulated. They're not required to do anything actually protective with your information, except for some very narrow band of information. The current law in the United States around data basically tells companies, well, you can't do something different than what you said. But as long as you tell people what you're going to do, you can do whatever the heck you want. And so a couple of years ago, they got in trouble with the FTC. One of the upshots was that they changed their policy. And instead, what did they change their policy to say? 
we can do anything. <laughs> so they would get in no more trouble for, tell, for doing something that they didn't tell you about because their new policy said, well, we can do anything. Well, that kind of brings me to my final and maybe most important question, which is if you are a person who is feeling uncomfortable with how Facebook treats you or how or your relationship with social media and you want to quit, how hard is it to do that? <laughs> they make it a little bit hard, but you, you can do it now. They're actually required by the European privacy law to um, make your data very deletable and also very portable. So you can take it with you if you delete. So, you know, if you want to deactivate your Facebook account, it's not like a one-click thing. You have to go to a bunch of clicks. You've got to find it in your settings. <laughs> got to go to your account. And then you can click deactivate your account. But here's the thing to know, and I think people realize this. Deactivating your account is temporary. Deleting huh. your account is permanent. So if you really want to delete your account, don't make a mistake and just deactivate it. Because some people just like to take breaks. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that, you can also download your data to see like, what was that, you know, collection of life that just happened in the last 10 years on this service? And I want to take it with me. They'll send you little psychological warnings and luring tactics to try to convince you not to do it. Like <laughs> the biggest one being like, okay, you'll lose all these connections. So you have to say, okay, I'm going to lose access to all these connections. <laughs> but if you're deciding to do it, hopefully you've thought that through. And I guess my advice is if you're thinking about doing it, just deactivate for a little while and see the effect that it has on your life. Everyone that I've known has who has done that has said that they go through this like withdrawal period, like a drug <laughs> for like a week or five days. Oh my gosh. And then the need shifts, just huh. like if you give up sugar or something. Yeah, that you adapt to life without Facebook. Yeah, but there is a withdrawal period for like life without social media, particularly <laughs> if you're an Instagram addict. I know people on Instagram have the hardest time stopping. Yeah, I can imagine lots of bright, pretty pictures. Scary. Scary and interesting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Lisa. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And before we go, one more thing. The movie is never as good as the book, as they say, but there were a lot of movies that came close this year. That's The Post's book editor, Stephanie Mary. She recently wrote about all the exciting book-to-movie adaptations that came out this year. To All the Boys I've Loved Before was a massive success for Netflix, based on the book by Jenny Han. It's the story of an Asian-American high schooler who starts a fake relationship with one of the popular kids. And there's even a Best Picture hopeful, If Bill Street Could Talk, from James Baldwin's 1974 book. But Stephanie also noticed that all these thoughtful adaptations had an interesting factor in common. Hollywood, we all know it's not known for its diversity, was suddenly turning out movies with less homogenous sets of actors. What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Singapore, Colin's wedding. Don't you want to meet my family? Crazy Rich Asians had an entirely Asian cast, the first big studio film to have one in a quarter century. Damn, Rachel, it's like the Asian bachelor. There was more high-minded fare, too. Spike Lee's Black Klansman is up for four Golden Globe Awards. And then there's The Hate You Give, based on the young adult novel by Angie Thomas, which focused on a black teenager as she struggled with the aftermath of a police shooting. Today, Garden Heights is reeling after the shooting of a 17-year-old black teenager by a white police officer. We live in a complicated world. It doesn't seem that complicated to me. Now, the movie and book industries have long had a symbiotic relationship. When Hollywood needs a plot, it turns to authors, who in turn get a nice sales bump for their books. Even the ones that came out ages ago, like A Wrinkle in Time. Your father has accomplished something extraordinary. 
also dangerous. Madeline Lingle's novel ended up back on the bestsellers list in 2018, 56 years after it came out. It's worth noting that while the novel A Wrinkle in Time did not have a diverse cast of characters, director Ava DuVernay wound up incorporating that into her interpretation of the movie. Oprah can really move inventory. That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalie Gasica. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also does our sound design and theme music. The Post's director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.